0: Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast for people who help people with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. Here's your host, Bob Sidlow. Hello. Welcome
1: to HIV Update, a podcast series for medical providers, nurses, and community health workers. The goal of this program is to inform and share best practices related to care for people with HIV and is brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center a regional partner of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I'm Bob Sidlow, your host, the director of the Connecticut AETC. I'll be joined by my co-host.
0: Sharon McKay, a curriculum development and evaluation specialist with Connecticut AETC.
1: Hi, we'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Valerie Earnshaw. She's an associate professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Education and Human Development. She received her PhD in social psychology from the University of Connecticut, where she began her life's work looking at the relationships between stigma and chronic diseases, including HIV. She went on to do postdoctoral work at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale University and then at Harvard Medical School. Recent projects in her lab at the University of Delaware include reducing enacted stigma among physicians who work with people with HIV, using the ECHO educational model, identifying factors that confer resilience to stigma in communities of color, developing medical assistance and partner notification as a practical approach to overcoming stigma. In addition, she and her colleague, Carly Hill, produce their own podcast, Sex, Drugs, and Science, which can be found wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Welcome, Dr. Earnshaw.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So Dr.
1: Earnshaw, what drew you to doing stigma research?
2: So, I always knew that I wanted to do something in my career that was helpful for others. So when I got to undergrad, I, I majored in psychology with the idea that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. Uh, at some point, I took an abnormal psychology class. I really hope that they're not called that anymore. Um, (laughs) We're studying, you know, like different mental health diagnoses. And I created the study guide where I was, you know, for one of my tests where I was just like, every column was a different mental health diagnosis and then characteristics of that. And then at the end of the column, I put, you know, people who were more likely to be affected by this mental health diagnosis. And I just noticed that across the board, people um, who experienced stigma, you know, like women, people of color were more likely to be experiencing um, some of these like adverse mental health outcomes. At the same time, I was working as a research assistant um, in a social psychology lab where they studied power and prejudice. And the whole thing really just got me thinking about, okay, well, maybe there are these larger forces stigma, prejudice, that's leading people to have these like negative mental health outcomes across the board. And for me in my career, do I want to spend my time focusing on um, the big picture social forces that are negatively impacting people? Or do I want to focus on the individual people like as a clinical psychologist and being helpful? And I think both are really valuable. Um, But you know, that those insights paired with actually really loving being part of a a research team started to drive me in the direction of stigma research. Also, another really formative experience for me was that when I was growing up, my mom was a nurse and she had a close friend named Wayne, who was a respiratory therapist. And Wayne was diagnosed with HIV in like the late 80s, early 90s, and he passed away from AIDS and he was hospitalized at the end of his life. And, um, my mom would go to visit him and come home really angry because the nurses just weren't taking good care of him. They were afraid to touch him. You know, his food was stacked up in his room. He wasn't being cleaned. And when he did pass again, she was angry. She was a little bit sad, but she was really angry. And I was really struck by like, wow, something really wrong has happened. Not just something sad, and so then later on, when I had the opportunity to, to focus in on stigma and HIV, you know, I remembered that experience and it was really motivated to, motivating to try to, you know, better understand it and ultimately do something about it.
1: What a powerful you know, experience that can definitely, you know, sometimes our life experiences really shape what we end up doing in our career paths. So
0: thank, yeah, you. thank
1: you for sharing that.
0: Uh, Dr. Earnshaw, one of the things that I've been really struck by in your work is how you really dissect stigma into subtypes. Um, I'd really love it if you could define the s- types of stigma that you study for our audience and explain why it's useful to distinguish these different types of stigma.
2: Thanks so much, Sharon, because this is like my favorite thing to do. <laughs> so <laughs> I am happy with the invitation to do that. So. Stigma itself is defined by sociologists and other theorists as like a broad social construct. So in that way, it's sort of this abstract thing. You know, when you think about like, how does a how does a social cro- construct or a social process actually impact people? I think it gets a little bit tricky. And so that's why we do try to sort of dissect it or, or break it down So we talk about how stigma is manifested, which really just means how it's expressed and experienced at both the structural level and then among individuals. So within structures, we think about cultural conditions, norms, policies, and laws, which are all very studyable, you know, and those are also changeable. So this would be things like the war on drugs or racial residential segregation. Those would be examples of structural stigma. And then at the individual level, so this is like individual people, we often differentiate between people living with a stigmatized status and people not living with that. So people not living with it would be like our community members in general, maybe our doctors, healthcare care providers, um, even though some of them may be, you know, living with HIV or have a substance use disorder or something. Um, among this group, we generally think about prejudice, stereotypes and discrimination. So prejudice are feelings, um, negative feelings or affects that we, that people may hold toward a stigmatized group. Stereotypes are beliefs or cognitions. So those are group-based beliefs that are um, sometimes applied to individuals or often inaccurate. And then discrimination is that behavioral component. So it's what people are actually doing to people who are from stigmatized groups. Then on the other hand, we've got the folks who are living with a stigmatized status. So this may be people who are living with HIV themselves or people who are experiencing or in recovery from a substance use disorder. And when we're thinking about them, we're thinking about how are they um, experiencing discrimination from others? Sometimes we call that experience or enacted stigma. So that discrimination can be happening, you know currently right now, or it could be something that happened to them in the past from a healthcare provider or a family member. This would be things like social rejection or receiving poor treatment. Uh, We also think about anticipated stigma, which is, um, what do I think is going to happen to me in the future when I go into that new social situation or meet a new person? And then we have internalized stigma, which is really, how do I feel about myself? And internalized stigma really comes with um, that that emotional feeling of shame. And like, I'm a, I'm someone who's uh, less than other people. So then Sharon, I think your second half of that question was, why, why do we distinguish between those? So there's a couple of reasons, I think, why it's important to distinguish. So one is that people may not experience all of these things. Um, so I think we've We all know people who live with some sort of stigmatized status who may experience those things from other people. You know, they may experience discrimination. They may know that they're gonna experience it in the future. I have these experiences as a woman. Like I can point to experiences of sexism or tell you what I think is gonna happen to me but then they don't internalize it. So I don't internalize, I think, <laughs> the stigma associated with being a woman. And so um, so it's important to tease those apart just because um, not everyone takes them in to the same extent or experiences them all together. Also the ways that stigma affects health is different. So if we think about how does internalized stigma affect my health versus how does anticipated stigma affect my health, those might be different pathways. So if I internalize it, I might feel badly about myself. I may not want to take my medication because I'm not really like worth it versus if I anticipate stigma, I may not be taking my medication. Just, you know, I'm totally worth it, but I just don't want other people to see it. I don't want other people to know and then lastly, our intervention strategies might be very different. So if you want to work with me on my internalized stigma, that's a different intervention strategy than working with me around my anticipated stigma.
1: So that's a, a lot of stigma, um, but, <laughs> I, it's, I, but I appreciate how, how, uh, how important it is to delineate the different ways to look at stigma or how it impacts people. How do you measure stigma? Are there um, validated measurement tools that have been developed, or how do you assess those types and the quantity of the different types of
2: stigmas? Yeah, exactly. So we usually use self-report uh, scales for measures of all of the individual-level things, so prejudice, stereotypes, discrimination. We do have some tests that let us get at implicit stigma, like implicit biases, um, hmm. and. We also use self report scales to get at people's experiences of enacted, anticipated, and internalized stigma. So we ask people, you know, how do you feel about yourself? What have you experienced? What do you think you're going to experience? Um, some and a lot of these scales are validated. You know, our best scales are validated. We do have some of them posted over at my website if folks are interested Um, So it is mostly self report scales. When we're talking about the The structural level, sometimes people will create um, measures, basically looking to see do different places have different policies that uh, might be stigmatizing. And sometimes they'll look at just one policy in isolation and they'll research that. Sometimes they'll look at sort of an aggregation, like how many stigmatizing policies are there in a certain place.
0: Uh, so you said that you have some uh, you have some of these uh, tools available at your website. I'll be sure to post your website with the um, with the podcast. I'm sure we'll have some listeners who might be interested in looking at some of those tools and maybe trying to use them in their own work. That'll be really, great. Um, I'd like to follow up on uh, your discussion of um, how you measure it, stigma and quantify it. And one of the things that I've been wondering about and thinking about your work is how do you quantify, levels of enacted stigma. Like enacted stigma seems to me like it would be very challenging to to quantify because you're kind of relying on getting accurate reports from people who may be uh, delivering that kind of stigma.
2: Yeah. Okay. So we're thinking about of the people who are doing the stigmatizing. So like our community members, our healthcare providers, right? Okay. Um, so... A plus Sharon. Yeah. (laughs) We're relying on people (laughs) who are stigmatizing to tell us about how stigmatizing they are. And yeah, that's really tricky. So the most common way to do this is to um, ask people about what they call discrimination intent. So we ask people like, Hey, would you be willing to be neighbors with someone with a substance use disorder? Would you be willing to have that person as a friend or take care of your children or those sort of things? And, um, if you ask about some stigmatized statuses, you will find people, um, I think one of the ideas you're getting at here is social desirability bias. Like people know that I shouldn't tell you. So that will kick in and you will see like low levels. They're like, of course I'll have, (laughs) like, would love to have somebody with depression in my family. Interestingly with opioid use disorder, that. We do still see really high levels of self-reported discrimination. So we do have lots of people saying like, no, thank you. I don't want to have somebody with this type of substance use disorder as my neighbor. Um, So that is, that's still like our most popular way of studying it. There are other ways, Sarah Calabrese, for example, does a really nice job looking at uh, discrimination among healthcare providers, and she uses like vignette-based studies. So what she'll do is she'll have two descriptions of patients who um, are coming to their coming to you because you're a doctor and you are a participant, and they're um, you're going to see one vignette of a patient who's coming to you to talk about prep, and that patient's going to have some description. You know, they're you're going to get their race, you're going to get their history of drug use, you're going to get how many sexual partners do they have. Um, Or another participant is going to get like a slightly different um, description of what that patient is like. And what she can see is that patients with uh, some characteristics overall will be less likely to be prescribed PrEP. So, you know, I think in some of her work, she's shown that patients who are black versus white or patients with. Certain types of substance use disorders versus those without substance use disorders are less likely to be um, prescribed prep, which is um, one way of studying, you know, this discrimination sort of more like at a population level, if that makes sense.
0: I see. Thanks. Do you ever um, do you ever compare people's reports of their activities to something like an implicit bias score?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, people do. People have looked at associations between implicit bias scores and self-reported like intentions to discriminate. Uh, So what they fill out in a scale, which isn't totally what you're asking. And sometimes those are associated and sometimes they're less associated than we would think that they should be. Mm -hmm. I, I know that people there is um, it's, it does get really, it can get pretty tricky to study like people's like real time discrimination behaviors for different reasons. I do know, um, that there are, there are some folks doing neat work with healthcare providers and like simulated patients and looking at how they interact and sort of coding for discrimination. But I actually don't know if they've, if they've looked at, you know, their codings for discrimination in those kind of simulated situations alongside, um, like implicit bias tests, but Hey, listeners. That's
0: a great... <laughs> a new
1: area of research.
2: <laughs> yeah, let's do it.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for defining stigma for us. I think, um I, I know when I first started looking at your work, I was, uh, m- my mind was just completely blown wide open by thinking about stigma in so many new ways. So I hope our listeners have also gotten that experience. So sure. I, I think we would like to now move on and hear about some of your Uh, key findings on stigma and HIV to begin with. I
1: think, Bob, did you? Yeah. When we we think about um, the HIV cascade of care, which is a model that outlines the steps of care that people with HIV go through from when they first are diagnosed, the initial diagnosis, to when they achieve viral suppression, how much does stigma interfere with the HIV cascade of care and a person Person's journey along that cascade of care, where are the most vulnerable points that stigma may have an impact?
2: So, the research that we have um, suggests that stigma plays a role in pretty much every step of the HIV cascade. So, if we start with testing, we know that people who are not living with HIV, so this is our community member group, but those who endorse more stereotypes about people living with HIV are less likely to engage in testing. We also know that people who anticipate more HIV stigma, if they were to test positive for HIV, they are also less likely to to engage in testing. Then when we move to, okay, so I've gotten my, my positive HIV test, it's time to link to care. We know that people who internalize stigma immediately after their HIV diagnosis are less likely to access care and to start medications as recommended. And we also have some good qualitative evidence that suggests that people who have been diagnosed and anticipate more stigma are more like worried about it or less likely to start care. There's been a really nice review paper looking at across studies and asking this question of why is, why is stigma associated with medication adherence? And that paper suggests that there's at least three different pathways that link stigma with medication um, adherence. So stigma appears to lead to more mental health difficulties, which makes it harder for people to be adherent to their medications. It also leads to reduced self-efficacy. And then it also leads people to conceal that they're living with HIV. So it it appears that it's like really these three different reasons why stigma is um, associated with um, less adherence to medication. Then when we get sort of further down the line of the cascade, we also see associations between stigma with physical health outcomes. So people who experience more anticipated and enacted stigma from other people appear to have worse physical health. So this is both lower CD4 counts and higher viral loads, greater comorbidities. The issue with anticipated and enacted stigma are that they're stressors. You know, these are things that we're worried about how other people are going to treat us or people are treating us poorly. We know that stress has a big physical um, health impact. And then internalized stigma is also associated with worse um, physical health. And it, you know, part of that might be that internalized stigma is getting in the way of people taking their medication, staying in care. And then that is having a downstream impact on physical health outcomes.
1: Yeah, internalized stigma is very powerful. And it can range from people who just sort of don't care. Uh, they stop having like self-interest or self-motivation to take care of themselves um, to feeling like that sense of spoiled goods that they're, um, you know, they've got something that's uh, so by our society um, uh, feared and um, that are so comes with so much judgment, moral and uh, other judgment um, that it uh, definitely can impact how a person um, is going to succeed in health outcomes if they have a lot of self-judgment about their uh, disease acceptance and and management,
2: absolutely. That I think you really hit it on the nose with the spoiled goods.
1: <laughs> it's a tough uh, phrase to use, but you know, uh, I was an outreach worker, and I know that this is one of the things that was m- like one of my first tasks was to try and get them to feel um, that they weren't, you know, that that there's a whole quality of life that's going to continue. Um, and this is just one facet of things that are happening in their world. And then the next step was getting them to deal with the stigma from the external environment, whether that's their family, their colleagues, their um, healthcare providers. The whole external thing was the, the both of those two things were key in being able to help guide somebody into care or return to care. So,
0: absolutely. Um, I. I I noticed um, I was got to thinking when you were talking about all the different ways that people can be impacted. There's a lot of um, interference with either initiation or um, adherence to antiretroviral therapy, and um, I have a question about the initiation part. But before I get there, I was just curious. Um, do you have any sense of how many people may actually um, get? You know, develop full-blown AIDS or even die because of stigma.
2: Oh wow, that's a great question. I I don't. I would love to know that number. Yeah, um, yeah it'd be it'd be really interesting to see if anyone's done that sort of like mathematical. Mor- yeah,
1: yeah, mortality assessment of stigma. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I
2: don't
1: know. Yeah, that that'd be a really tough
2: thing to tease it'd out. It'd be
0: tough, but yeah, it, it just makes me wonder. You know, I mean, with so much interference with medication.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. You know,
0: Um, So that so that leads me to a question. I uh, one of your uh, recent papers uh, that was really interesting was that um, one of the direct impacts of stigma on um, antiretroviral therapy was on a a, was to create a delay in initiating antiretroviral antiretroviral treatment, and I was thought that was uh, a it's a really interesting example of how it. Uh, stigma impacts the cascade of care, but I wonder: Did you anticipate ART initiation would be so vulnerable to stigma?
2: I did. I did because I think everything's vulnerable, <laughs> 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 maybe. Um, but that's a great question because in the previous re- literature, there had been null findings, which means that there were longi- longitudinal studies or studies tracking people over time that did not find that stigma was associated with um, with medication adherence, at least. So you're right. I think we were one of the first, or I'm not sure of others who had looked at initiation. But um, so I did think that we would find that. But what I was surprised at in that study more so was um, I was more 50-50 on whether we would find the, the pathway that links those two things. So we found in that study that People living with HIV who had more internalized stigma one week after their diagnosis were engaging in more avoidant coping three months later. So that's what I was surprised at. Then it was that avoidant coping that um, folks who were engaging in more avoidant coping were just less likely to start ARTs after six months. And then they Mm -hmm. were less likely to achieve viral load suppression at nine months. So um, I did, you know, I did think that we were going to see an association between stigma and um, medication initiation. But I was, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised because we had hypothesized it to find that pathway that it was that avoidant coping, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, I'm trying to avoid thinking about this. I'm trying to distract myself, which makes sense, right? Because if I feel like I'm, you know, as Bob said, like, if I feel like I'm spoiled goods, I don't want to think about that you know? And so if I don't want to think about that, why I don't want to take my medications. Like I just, I don't want to do things that, that increase the salience that get me to think about my HIV.
0: Um, it it struck me as a place where we could really intervene in medical training
2: mm-hmm. oh, to yeah. talk
0: with physicians about how important it is to try to, a not contribute to stigma at that moment of diagnosis and b try to offset any stigma that the patient has walked in with totally yeah
2: yeah actually when bob was saying you know here my first step is to- <laughs> is to walk them through how they're feeling about themselves. And my second step is to help them is to give them an armor for like going out into the world. I was like, yes, that's what, so we need. And when we talk to people about their early experiences of stigma, I mean, that first interaction with someone can really set a stage. Like, um, I mean, we also have research, you know, from an intersectional lens that helps us to identify who's most likely to internalize stigma. So we know that folks who are diagnosed with HIV, but before that diagnosis, they had already internalized like race-based stigma or stig- or homophobia, that those folks then are more likely to also internalize HIV stigma. So there might be ways for us to keep a lookout for the people who are more likely to experience it. And then for the, after an HIV diagnosis to, to check that out, you know, to, to, ask people questions, maybe measure it, find out if they are internalizing stigma and then maybe try to do something about it before they leave.
1: Do we know anything that can be um, done to like factors that might increase that resilience to stigma induced experiences that might delay, I don't know, antiretroviral therapy for somebody with HIV, a new diagnosis? Do we have any idea about how best to mitigate some of that?
2: The nice thing about stigma research in general is that what tends to work with one stigmatized status often works with another. So actually, John Pachankos down at Yale, where you all are at, yeah. is doing some really nice work around um, around stigma interventions for folks, uh, sexual and gender minorities, and specifically looking at what different types of psychological therapies are helpful for folks. So things like Cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful for reducing internalized stigma. From other areas of research like um, stigma associated with different mental health conditions, we also see that intervention strategies that are designed to foster pride, empowerment, and self-esteem can can help to reduce um, internalized stigma as well. So there's different things that folks can do. And I think the trick is in like tailoring it for this context of HIV.
1: So we've been looking at this stigma around through the lens of HIV. And and so I wonder if we switch gears now and think about substance use disorder, particularly opioid use disorder, and a cascade of care for that, for substance use disorder. Are there specific stigma-sensitive points in that cascade that are different than um, when we think about the HIV lens?
2: Yeah, so... um... The, the literature for substance use disorder stigma overall and opioid use disorder stigma specifically is is less advanced than what we have for HIV stigma. So it, it, it also, because it's less advanced, there's also like some more mixed findings. So sometimes stigma is associated with like less engagement in care. Sometimes it's associated with greater engagement in care, but I think that's because We're relying more on cross-sectional studies, studies that are just a snapshot in time, as opposed to ones that are following people over time. So I'll just preface this by saying the literature is a little bit more mixed, but overall the processes appear to be really similar. So we do know, or what we're seeing is that people who have a substance use disorder, but haven't engaged in care yet. So they might be noticing that they have some symptoms that if they anticipate more stigma, if they're more worried about what other people think, and if they internalize more stigma, they appear to be less likely to start care. And then um, same with once they're in care, we see some signals that, you know, people who are experiencing stigma from others are, are less likely to be adherent to, uh, like medications for opioid use disorder, for example, and people who internalize stigma also have a tougher time. What's interesting is, um, some of what's interesting there is my graduate student, Natalie Brousseau, all the good people are in Connecticut, I'm realizing as I'm you. Yeah, Natalie is now up at University of Connecticut uh, working with Seth Galichman, but she found that stigma was, um, or some of our analyses that we've done together has suggested that like stigma from family members among folks who are in treatment appears to be like particularly um, particularly harmful. And we've seen that in other studies too. Yeah you know, people will disclose to a family member, I'm in treatment for an opioid use disorder, I'm receiving these medications and the family member will be like, well, that's substituting one drug for another, or that's like at best and at worst it's well, you know, you're on welfare and I pay taxes. So I'm still funding your like drug addiction type of stuff that oh. nice messaging that people are getting then oh. leads them to be like, well, maybe I should come off these medications which is bad news. You know, you don't want people coming off their medications because their parent told them to do it rather than a doctor told them to do it.
1: Or they're ready, or they're ready to come off. Exactly. You know, they've resolved or, you know, worked on that issue. Um, I'm a nurse in a detox unit and a methadone clinic on the side, um, but I have definitely seen the impact of uh, stigma, um, uh, from the patients um, who first show up for, uh, for instance, engaging in methadone maintenance, um, where they're um, they don't they worry about seeing people they know there. They're yeah. worried about um, this disclosure and the that they have to. You know they know how society views people with addiction, and so if they've been keeping their addiction relatively private and now they're getting help for the first time, it's a really tough place. For them to engage in care, um, but you know they're brave enough to get there in the first place. Um, the stigma does seem to be a little better when people have recycled through the system, which is common for a substance use disorder. People relapse and return towards uh, care, and then relapse, and it, it's a cycle. Some people are able to achieve, um, you know, uh, sobriety or uh, resolve their substance use disorder, but it's a repetitive um, disease and. The stigma that can um, pervade that experience can sometimes get a little better for them engaging in care if they've had positive experiences in previous efforts towards care. Right, right. So big message out to our healthcare providers that if you make a welcoming environment, it's not that somebody failed because they're back at detox. It's, it's okay that you're here because obviously you needed help today. And if you need help, we're here, that's what we do. Um, and uh, and good for you for coming in and getting the help, uh, rather than why did you fail? Why did you relapse? What went wrong? Um, is not probably the most helpful approach.
2: I'm starting to feel like our best stigma reduction strategy is step A: clone Bob. Step, step <laughs> B: <laughs> send him <them> out everywhere.
1: <laughs> wow, that's high praise. That's Thank nice. you. <laughs> that's,
2: you got. that's my new that's my new uh, number one tool in the toolkit. I think. Um, <laughs>
0: Thanks. <laughs> so I'm interested in uh, something you said earlier. You were talking, when we were talking about the HIV stigma internalized, sorry, internalized um, stigma and the delay in ART initiation. And you said that. Um, People who've experienced other kinds of stigma, like um, racially um, motivated stigma, are sometimes more susceptible to that internalized stigma, the impact of the internalized stigma. So that um, kind of brings us to this issue of intersectionality. And I think here, when we talk about opioid use disorder, which is associated with an elevated risk of HIV and it, its own stigma so this becomes an area where you have an intersectional component as well so i was just wondering like are there any concrete examples of interactions between hiv status substance use disorder stigma health outcomes for patients and maybe with other types of stigma that people may be experiencing as well
2: yeah thank you for that question i mean Substance use disorder stigma is such a prism, you know, for like all different types of stigma because other forms of stigma can lead people to develop a substance use disorder-related stigma. So, or substance use disorder a substance use disorder, period. So, like we know that like people experience racism are more likely to engage in substance use. People experiencing LGBT stigma are more likely to engage in substance use. So Substance use itself, by the time you get there, you may have been experiencing all these different forms. So um, what we have seen in our research is that people who internalize both uh, high levels of HIV stigma and high levels of substance use disorder stigma, and this sample was folks recruited from a, um, a clinic for medications for opioid use disorder. So these were mostly folks with opioid use disorders that those folks had like the highest levels of depressive symptoms. So we do know that the coming together of those two is maybe in some circumstances, like particularly harmful for mental health. I was just looking at this really interesting study out of South Africa. Um, I think the author's name was Regener and colleagues. And what they were doing was also looking at this intersection of alcohol and other drug use stigma with HIV stigma And they found that um, they had two primary findings. This was with qualitative data. One of them was that people living with HIV are are engaging in substance use to cope with HIV stigma. So here's a way, You know, this is a little bit of a different intersectional frame, but this is a way again that like HIV stigma is leading to an exacerbation of symptoms within substance use. And I think we'd see the same with opioid use disorder. And then substance use stigma becomes a barrier to accessing HIV care is what folks are describing, which makes a lot of sense because people just experienced pronounced substance use disorder related stigma in healthcare settings. And even if they haven't been, sometimes HIV care settings are like really lovely bubbles. You know, they're like great homes away from stigma and people report, I have great Relationships with my HIV providers, but I I don't want to go anywhere else because people stigmatize me. But you know, if you're someone with a substance use disorder who has um, recently become infected with HIV, like you may not know that. You know, you may just be going off of years of terrible experiences with healthcare providers related to your substance use disorder. Um, so I thought that was a really inter- that was a really interesting finding for me thinking about not only how do how does Stigma associated with multiple things like shape people's experiences of it. Cause that's often what we're thinking about with intersectional stigma, a black person with an opioid use disorder may just experience stigma associated with that very differently than a white person. Like they're because of the war on drugs and how the war on drugs intersects with race. They're for one thing, very more likely to land in jail, but not mm-hmm. only does it, shape the experiences of stigma differently, but also like, how do they sort of reinforce each other? I think is is a really interesting thing to think about.
0: Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's like HIV stigma and substance use disorder stigma create like a perfect storm. Oh, yeah a sort of perfect circular cyclone of like, yeah. interactions yeah
1: and I, you know I would point out too that people who acquire HIV or who have substance use disorders often have a history of trauma in their background oh, yeah. and so they you know they um, they could have a either just a history of trauma or PTSD and as you look forward to them you know g- getting a diagnosis of HIV or trying to receive care for a substance use disorder um, that they're experiencing experiencing stigma or both of those things at the same time, Um, they're experiencing stigma, which in and of itself can be traumatizing. So it can be adding new layers of trauma to people who already have a history, um, are more likely to have a history of uh, uh, trauma in their, in their backgrounds. So, you know, a key part of working with trauma is recognizing the behavioral health component and addressing the need to look at how the trauma of um, stigma is impacting somebody and how we can, you know, work with that person, that, that individual or the system of care to help address um, and reduce the reinforcing of, or creating of new traumas or reinforcing of past traumas.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's like trauma. I mean, it's like stigma really becomes folded into trauma informed care. And it should be really recognized. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. Like a really good point. So before we uh, let you go, there, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, your um, you're a really great example of somebody who has been doing research and is now sort of turning their research into a way to create advocacy. Um, so you had a, a paper um, recently. Um, where you called on psychologists to take an advocacy role for people with substance use disorder. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this and what led you to to sort of try to take this active role in um, implementing your research in this way.
2: Sure. That's a, a really nice, generous thing for you to say. You guys better be careful or I'm gonna try to stay online with you like all afternoon if this
1: we can compliment each other back and forth it's fine
2: i'm never gonna leave yeah (laughs) um well you know i got into this field to help people and um i think that i i'm I'm actually one of those weird academics or those weird people who i really do love sitting in my office by myself (laughs) writing papers and analyzing data like i i love that uh It's one of my favorite things, but, you know, and as grateful as I am sharing that you read that paper, you know, or found your way to that paper, I'm also very aware that the things that we're finding don't make it very far. You know, they make it into Google Scholar or PubMed. And if we're lucky, the paywall is broken down and people can access them but then are they able to read them? Like who knows? So um, it's, so as much as I actually would love to just spend all my time, like writing papers and analyzing data, it's not enough. I think if, if we really do want to be changing, um, changing these things and helping people. So that's kind of one of the reasons I also just as a you know, as a researcher, there's so many of these little moments where you're invited and it's amazing to be invited to go talk to like community organizations. And at some point in those talks, you know, I'll be like, "Stigma's terrible. Here's all the way this that stigma's terrible." <laughs> Someone is going to look you in the eye and say, like the last time it happened to me in Wilmington somebody looked me in the eye and said, "Okay, so when somebody Stigmatizes me, what can I do in that moment not to feel badly? And then you're just blown over, like, I don't know what you can do. Like I have a career <laughs> studying why this is so terrible for you. So it's just it's mo it has motivated me to do more like actual research focused on solutions. Not because that's necessarily like what funders are going to give money to, which is true. Like it's easier to study interventions than why stigma is bad for you all the time. But also just so that I can go like look people in the eye when I'm off campus and say, well, here's what I'm doing to try to fix it. Um, The other thing, um, the other thing is like, you know, in terms of just general advocacy, like I'm a white Lady pushing middle age in the suburbs of Wilmington. And I'm like, sometimes I feel like I can be like a Trojan horse for stigma reduction. Like, my neighbors ask me what I do for a living. I'm like, oh, I mean, one answer is like, oh, I'm a professor at the University of Delaware. But another answer is, I work on stigma associated with opioid use disorders. Oh, you don't know about opioid use disorders in our state? Let me tell you all about it. You're not familiar with medications? Let me tell you about that. Hey, do you want to see what like Narcan looks like? Let me grab my bag. So like in in this way, I have the opportunity to to increase community awareness, to have these conversations and people like my neighbors don't know what I do. They, they don't see it coming. And it's, um, stigma associated, especially with substance use disorders is so pronounced. It's so bad that I think it's, it's an easy place for us all to have conversations. And, the strategies also for reducing stigma are sometimes really small, even just changing our language, right? Like not referring to people as addicts or people as dirty or clean, like using scientifically accurate person first language, like people with substance use disorders or someone who's experiencing a recurrence of symptoms um, is actually like, we have research that shows that that shifts people's stereotypes. It shifts their perceptions of blame. So So, yeah, I just think we owe it to the people that we work with to to try to do something about it. And then when you pair that with like, because there's so much stigma, it's actually there's just like so much you can do. Like, you know, how could you not?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's so important to advocate for change and to be able to uh, your research definitely points out places that are. Uh, areas of concern. So thank you for that. And that little cogitating you do in your office is really important. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The advocacy part is also good. Um, And I, you know, one thing in in all of this discussion about stigma that we talked about really um, is the little tiny sliver of stigma around language that you just referred to. And we could just do a whole nother hour. (laughs) Language and how language actually reinforces, creates and all of that around stigma and how we um, as a nurse who works in a detox unit and a methadone clinic on the side, um, I have my colleagues who say he turned in another dirty urine, and I'm like, no, it was just positive for substances. So, like, yeah. so we, we as healthcare providers have a role in, in, in looking at that both professionally, but in our regular personal lives, everyday people need guidance and they need to understand and so that's part of the role that we have um, as people who work in the healthcare field. So, well, thank you very much for this talk today. Is there anything else you want to ask or say, Sharon? Uh,
0: no, no. I, I thank you so much. It's been so nice talking with you. Thank you for spending uh, some time with us and uh, helping us understand uh, the depth and the, and the complexity of stigma uh, and uh, helping our listeners understand that a little bit better, too.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for doing this because, you know, I think that this is a really great way to share this information and to share these conversations with folks who might not otherwise, you know, hear it. I'm a huge podcast fan. I'm always on walks listening in and things. And I think they're just such a fantastic way to, to share.
0: Yes. And I'd like to remind listeners that you can listen to Dr. Earnshaw's podcast, Sex, Drugs and Science um, at uh, anywhere where you get your podcasts, so. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much.